Chapter Eight of George Washington. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. George Washington by Callista McCabe Courtney. Chapter Eight. Washington retires to Mount Vernon, inaugurated as first president of the United States, his re-election, his death at Mount Vernon, seventeen eighty-three to seventeen ninety-nine. There are many things to be remembered about the Revolution. Its objects were to gain liberty, equality, and a fair chance for everybody. It was won by the patience and courage of patriots, ill-fed, ill-clad, and ill-paid. Its armies were too weak for the glory of many great battles. Years afterward, Lafayette said to Napoleon, it was the grandest of causes won by the skirmishes of sentinels and outposts. Washington laid aside his sword and spent five happy years at Mount Vernon. He was a brave soldier, but he loved best the quiet life of the farm. He once said, How pitiful is the ambition which desolates the world with fire and sword for the purpose of conquest and fame, compared to making our neighbors and fellow-men happy. His home was filled with guests whom he loved to entertain, and who were always sure of a courteous and dignified welcome. The two little children of Mrs. Washington's son, who had died of fever during the war, Nellie and George, made the place merry, and the general joined in their play and enjoyed the change from camp to home life. Those who were with him constantly say that he never spoke of himself and never referred to any of his battles. He had done his work and done it well. Now he left it behind him and looked forward to the joy of his home. At the close of the war some of his friends had wanted to make him king, but he would not hear of it. He had fought to make America a free land, and not for his own glory. The thirteen states were loosely bound together in a confederation. As time went on, the rights of different states came into conflict. Washington, from his fireside, watched the interests of his country. He believed with other great Americans that only a strong central government could keep harmony among the states. In 1787 a convention was called in Philadelphia to talk the matter over. Each state sent its most brilliant and thoughtful men, among them, of course, being Washington. After four months of careful consideration and labor, they offered to the American people the glorious Constitution upon which has been built the great Republic of the United States. Washington said that they had God's help in laying the foundation for tranquillity and happiness. The people accepted the Constitution, and turned to Washington for their first president. No one else was thought of, and he was unanimously elected. New York was chosen for the capital. On April 30, 1789, Washington took the oath of office on the open balcony of Federal Hall in Wall Street, in the presence of a great multitude. Then he walked to St. Paul's Church, and devoutly kneeling, prayed to God for strength and guidance. Washington had need to pray for he was facing difficulties and problems greater than any he had known. He was at the head of a government such as had never been tried before, and the eyes of the world were upon him. The peoples of downtrodden lands looked to him for the success of freedom. He said truly, I walk untrodden ground. For there was no great republic in history whose example he could follow. His heavy task was to bring into harmony the differences of widely separate states, to make fair laws to create a national money, to organize the different departments of government, in short, to make one nation out of thirteen. Washington never flinched from responsibility. 
He took up his new work with methodical patience, and was most fortunate in having the help of great men. The states sent their best men to Congress. John Adams was vice-president. The first Secretary of State was Thomas Jefferson, who had written the Declaration of Independence. General Knox was made Secretary of War. The still youthful Alexander Hamilton was appointed Secretary of the Treasury. The country owes much to him for its success and prosperity, for he was the one who made the financial plans, without which the government could not exist. Washington's family joined him in New York, where they lived. The city streets were dirty and dark at this time, and only one was paved. Negro slaves carried all the water for the household from the river, in tubs balanced on their heads, while drinking-water was sold from wagons, as there was only one pump in the city. The President travelled about in a cream-coloured coach with pictures painted on the doors and panels. It was drawn by cream-coloured horses, with white manes and tails. Sometimes on Saturday afternoons this coach, which was well known to all the people, was sent to bring playmates to drive with Nellie and George. Washington drove to the first meeting of Congress in a coach drawn by six horses, with a coachman and footman in scarlet and white liveries, and with an escort mounted on prancing white steeds. Such style really was not uncommon in those days, and the six horses were not so much for show as they were needed to draw the heavy carriage over the bad roads. The fear that our country might become a monarchy had not entirely disappeared, so Washington lived as simply as he could, and avoided everything that suggested the pomp of a king. The President and Mrs. Washington often went on foot to call on their friends and that the people might meet them freely, they held public receptions on Friday evenings from eight to ten. While always reserved and dignified, Washington was gracious and attentive to his guests. His wife was the same sweet hostess as at Mount Vernon. At dinner, if no chaplain was present, Washington asked the blessing himself. Sunday was always strictly observed in the Washington household. In the morning the President went to church, and the rest of the day he spent quietly with his family. In the autumn after his election he wrote the first proclamation setting aside a Thursday in November for Thanksgiving. From that time to this, in November of each year, America gives thanks to God for her liberties. At this time Lafayette was fighting for the cause of liberty in France. When the terrible Bastille prison in Paris was torn down at his command, he sent its huge key to Washington, because he believed the same love of liberty for which Washington had fought had also destroyed this state dungeon of tyranny, where many good people had suffered unjustly. One of the problems Washington had to meet was the warlike attitude of the Indians, with whom there was some border fighting. He always treated them fairly, and often entertained them. When they came he impressed them by a great show of elegance and style. Once a great chief and twenty-eight warriors from Alabama came to make a treaty. The President gave them a splendid dinner at his house. Then he showed them a full-length oil portrait of himself. They looked at it, touched it, and looked behind it. Finding it flat, they grunted in disgust, and not one of them would allow his picture to be made. Dressed in his handsomest clothes, the President took them, in their full dress of feathers and paint, for a walk down Broadway, which he enjoyed as much as they. Washington liked to slip away from his cares and go fishing. He was a good fisherman, and it was said all the fish came to his hook. The southern states were not pleased with the choice of New York as the capital, as they thought it too far away. So the seat of government was moved to Philadelphia. Washington wanted to move quietly, 
On a summer morning he and his family were all up by candlelight, expecting to steal away in their carriages, when suddenly a military band began to play under their windows. The people came running from all directions. "'There, we are found out,' said the President. "'Well, they must have their way.' So his party walked to the pier between rows of loving people, and were rowed to the Jersey shore, while cannon boomed and the multitude shouted. Six horses were needed to drag their coach over the poor roads, and the occupants of the coach were in danger of being upset. The house of Robert Morris in Philadelphia was taken for Washington, who paid the rent himself. Pennsylvania built a President's mansion, but it was so big and fine that Washington refused to live in it, and so it was used for the Pennsylvania University. While his furniture was coming by sea from New York, Washington had time for a short visit to Mount Vernon, but he and his family were settled in his new home when Congress met the first Monday in December. About this time two political parties began to form in the United States. The Federalists, who were led by Hamilton, wanted to make a strong central government, which would develop the country and be respected abroad. The Democratic-Republicans, who were led by Jefferson, wanted the states to hold the chief power, because they were afraid a strong central government might be turned into a monarchy. Both parties had the good of the country at heart. Jefferson's party is the Democratic party of the present day, and the Federalists live still in the Republican party. Jefferson and Hamilton were bitterly opposed to each other's ideas, and disputed with their usual fighting quality. Washington quietly heard each side and did his best to keep the two men at peace, for the country needed both. In the spring and summer of 1791 Washington made a tour of the southern states. It was a trip covering 1,875 miles. The same horses made the entire journey and kept up their spirits until they trotted back into their stalls at home. The President returned very happy about the condition of the country, and delighted with its confidence in the new government. The end of his term of four years drew near, and Washington looked forward to the comfort of private life. He was growing quite deaf, and had had several severe illnesses. He was tired of the load of care, and of the strife of opposing parties. But four years were not time enough to establish so great a government. Washington alone held the faith and confidence of the people, and they begged him to give them four years more. He wanted to retire, as he feared that after another term he would not be able to carry out his plans for Mount Vernon but he finally consented. Washington's second term was filled with great difficulties. Indians attacked the western frontiers, and Algerian—Algeria is in northern Africa—pirates seized American ships and imprisoned American citizens. France and England were at war, and it was difficult to keep America out of the quarrel. These and other problems, besides disputes among public men, kept Washington's heart weary and sore. Through it all, he said, there is but one straight course, and that is to seek truth and pursue it steadily. His only wish was to lead the country to respectability, wealth, and happiness. He paid no attention to his own comfort or desire. Though often misunderstood and ridiculed by men who did not agree with him, he never failed to do what he thought was right. His wisdom and justice were so great that, in all these years, the wisest men have found little in the actions of Washington they would change. Jefferson said of him that no motive of interest or friendship or hatred could influence him. He was in every sense of the word a wise, a good, and a great man. At the close of his second term, 1797, Washington insisted upon retiring, and he counted the days until he might lay aside the cares of office and seek his rest. He sent his farewell address to Congress, and it has been said that nothing finer has ever been written 
than his last great message to his countrymen. On the 4th of March, 1797, John Adams was inaugurated as the second President of the United States. But the thought and love of the great assembly at the inaugural ceremony were turned toward Washington, the white-haired soldier who had led the country through war to a prosperous peace. The people followed him to his door, where, with tears in his eyes, the father of his country waved farewell to them and to all beloved citizens of the nation. In a few days Washington was at home again upon his farm. He spent his time riding over his plantations, looking after his crops and horses and cattle. Often he took out his surveying instruments, and spent a day laying out his land, or he planted trees and vines about his house and lawns. To the country folks he was a beloved neighbor and friend. Visitors came frequently to his home, while Nellie and George and their young friends kept the place lively. Under the care of her grandmother, Nellie had grown into a beautiful and well-educated young lady. Her wit and sweetness of temper were a great joy to Washington, who loved her dearly. She had many suitors, but delighted Washington by choosing his favorite nephew, Lawrence Lewis, for her husband. They were married on Washington's birthday, and the general wore his old continental uniform of buff and blue, though he had a new and finely embroidered one that Nellie wanted him to put on. The quiet life of Mount Vernon was broken before long. The new president got into such trouble with France that the country was threatened with war. Washington was asked to take his old position of commander-in-chief of the army, and he accepted. He organized an army, but fortunately peace was made without bloodshed, and he was glad to go back to Mount Vernon. One winter day, while riding, Washington was caught in a heavy storm of rain and snow. He was used to all kinds of weather, and thought nothing of the exposure, even though he was hoarse and had a severe cold the next day. Before morning of the third day he was very ill, and when the doctors came they bled him. It was the stupid practice of those days, and in a few hours Washington was so weakened as to be past hope of recovery. He died on December 14, 1799, as bravely as he had lived. His wife, praying beside him, was as brave and as calm as he. He had asked that his funeral might be a simple one, and so it was. None was there but friends and neighbors. The casket was carried out upon the veranda that all might see his face. Troops from Alexandria, Virginia, with solemn music, led the funeral procession. Four clergymen in white followed. The general's favorite horse, with saddle and bridle, was led by two negro grooms. The casket, borne by Freemasons and army officers, was followed by his family, and by friends and neighbors. While minute guns were fired from a warship in the river below, the procession wound along the lovely paths of Mount Vernon to the family tomb on the hillside. Here the body was laid to rest with religious and Masonic ceremonies. When the news reached the people that Washington was dead, the whole country went into deepest mourning. In Europe the sorrow was true and sincere. The British fleets put their flags at half-mast, and Napoleon ordered crepe put upon the banners of France. Though Washington was born and educated in America, and belongs truly to Americans, he was such a friend to humanity, such a champion of liberty, that the whole world claims him as a model. His will provided that after the death of his wife all his slaves should be free, and he left money for those who could not earn a living. His able management had made Mount Vernon a great estate of nine thousand acres. Beside this, he held forty-four other tracts of land in nine different states, and he was one of the greatest landowners in America. Believing that the Republic would stand secure only upon a foundation of education, courage, and conscience, 
He left money for a great American university. In this he wanted the young people to be trained in the principles of true Americanism. He wanted the intelligence of the country to guide its politics. It is unfortunate that to the present day the university has not been founded, although there is now every likelihood that such a national university will be established in Washington, and vast sums contributed to the fund Washington had left for this purpose. The site of the city of Washington was selected for the federal capital in 1790, and ten years later the seat of government was moved from Philadelphia to Washington. President Washington himself headed the body of commissioners who chose the site and arranged for the purchase of the land. The city was named in his honor. It is beautifully laid out with magnificent avenues, parks, fountains, and stately buildings, and is one of the finest and most comfortable cities in the world. In the house at Mount Vernon there was a little attic room, hot in summer, bitter cold in winter, but its one window was the only one that looked upon the tomb on the hillside, and so Mrs. Washington, after the death of her husband, moved into this little room. Two and a half years later she died there, and her body was laid beside that of Washington. Years passed, and the beautiful house began to fall into ruin. A new and simple tomb was erected to Washington, but it also was neglected. Nothing was done to restore Mount Vernon until the women of the country bought the place. They rebuilt the walls and porches, brought back the old furniture, planted vines about the tomb, and still kept it as Washington would have wished, as a shrine for all to visit, where respect can be paid to the memory of the father of his country. End of chapter 8 And End of George Washington Recording by Bill Borst